this week's episode of Discologist, we're talking with producer and multi-instrumentalist Brad Allen Williams about his new album, Economy, which is out now on Colorfield Records. Tune in to hear Brad's thoughts on creativity, guitar in the 21st century, and much, much more. Are you ready? Let's get on with the show. Cheering for Gordon? Are they cheering for they, they, Brad Allen Williams? They are cheering because they all listen to his new album, Economy. Hell yeah. Uh, which, which, you know, we talked briefly about this album. It, it is somewhere between jazz and a little like industrial, but there's a real, the more, the more I've listened to this since we first played the track on, on an episode, I think it was two episodes ago. It, there's a there's a depth to it that it seems like keep going, um, and it's so rewarding. And 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 you can drop in. There's there's boomer is like just a hit, yeah. As yeah. far as I'm concerned, but but you can go in and like just spend time. It's 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 working for me. Is what I'm saying. It's it's a really tight listen. I think it clocks in at like under forty minutes. Um, it's really like variegated. It just gives you a lot of different looks and feels. It has sort of a you know consistent um overall vibe but it but within that it 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 really gives you kind of you know up down warm uh you know compositional stuff technical proficiency it's really really feels like a little bit of a gift to have to have found this record um yeah yeah and and, and, and more of a, more of a gift was that was that and this was totally unexpected uh his rep reached out to us after we we talked about this and said oh, dude Brad would really like to talk to you and we're like Yes. Yeah. Yes. I think we should talk to the person who who created this this amazing work. And what you're about to hear is uh, there's a lot about gear. <laughs> there, there's he he, he is it, uh, the term gearhead. Some people don't like it, so I'm not going to use that. But he's very knowledgeable about gear. He gets he, he gets excited. He's a, he's, he's, a, studio he's a studio rat. He's a studio rat. He's a guy who knows yeah. his way around a recording room really well and around tools and 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 that and that comes across that was really really fun to hear him talk about that yeah so if, if you're tuned in if you haven't heard economy yet uh go and listen to that I, I think that's important that you be informed you're gonna love it here is our chat with uh i'll go with amazing the amazing brad allen williams I had um, uh, a question I was going to kick this off with, yeah. But but then in doing research for this today, I, I was looking over YouTube and stuff. Mm-hmm. And and one thing that, that I do want to talk about at some point is that uh, you you seem to be quite the gearhead. But <laughs> I found I found this video of you uh, going in and testing clones. Uh, and, yeah. and, and just testing the resistance and everything. And something about it was so soothing. Uh, <laughs> I, was just, I was just sitting there like, oh, wow, this is like AMSR. This is amazing. <laughs> um, and, and for people who don't know, like a clon is, is a is sort of a revered like overdrive pedal, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think, I believe you have two of them, which is I have, crazy. I have one of the like, the original one that everybody's asking a lot of money for now. And then I have the KTR, which is like the kind of the, um, the second version or whatever that's now going up in value. And I also have a third kind of like a fake one. And the, I replaced, I got the fake one so I could kind of replace the, the real one on my touring pedal board that I, that I use with Brittany Howard, just because the pedal got too expensive or too valuable to, uh, check into cargo holds of airplanes and just throw on semi trucks on tours. It just started to not seem sensible. I mean, I've been, I bought it brand new in 2007 and I, it's one of those things where I know very much what it does and it works very well for me. 
Um, I wouldn't suggest anybody spending $7,000 on one. It's just an overdrive pedal. That's a stupid way to spend $7,000. So many overdrive pedals are just fine. But it, it sounds so good. See, it that, does that's, sound good. There's yeah. a thing about it that really works for me. And it's funny because I was touring um, with great drummer Nate Smith uh, has this band Kinfolk. And we were touring in Europe this past summer through like the European air travel mayhem, uh, like the worst time I've ever traveled in Europe. And they, of course, lost our luggage in Italy. And so and I had my smaller client, like the KTR, the red one. Um, with me and of course it was just lost somewhere in baggage hell and so i was just using rental gear and i just had you know had tube screamers and just like whatever regular overdrive pedals and it was fine i mean i didn't like it as well because i'm so used to what the clon does but it's fine it's just gear can you you've played with a lot of bands like as a touring member of a band you mentioned like uh -huh. Brittany howard the kinfolk stuff do you think people can tell in a live setting if you're using a clon or like a tube screamer that's an interesting question and i think it kind of gets the the answer is kind of the same to any gear question which is if it matters to you as the player it matters to the audience you know because it's like anything anything that's in our sort of orbit when we're working has the potential to impact the work and if if you as an artist have internalized this idea that it matters and and it gets in your head if you don't have it, then like you may not perform as well. And if you if you have internalized the idea that that it's not the gear that matters, that it's like your relationship with whatever tool you have at your disposal that matters, then like that will also be true, you know. Um, and I like to keep in mind because I'm kind of a studio guy, like I live in recording studios. It's like I'm a partner in a big recording studio in Brooklyn. Still, it's it's my life. Like I love recording stuff and kind of one of the best parts for me about being, um, around all the best recording gear, all the best microphones, all like we, you know, our, our place in Brooklyn has two Neve consoles and an SSL, you know, and, and like the best part about that for me is the opportunity to become completely blase about all of it. You know, it's like you understand that it's just stuff you use. And like once the like once it's not something you're lusting over on Reverb.com anymore, once it's a thing that's been part of your daily life for a long time, like it's like the idea that it could somehow be magical just goes away and you can just get on with the work. You know, that's to me, that's the best part of having good gear is that you it allows you to get over your obsession with gear. Yeah, I, I, I have, have avoided building a, a, a good size pedal board for like years. Mm -hmm. And uh, part of there are a lot of reasons for that, but it was just like the way I play. I wanted it to be a certain way. And then I got uh, for recording stuff, uh, just doing stuff in uh, native instruments in Ableton mm -hmm. using that. Mm -hmm. And and having being gone from doing all that and having to have all these pedals to all of a sudden having like guitar rig. Which obviously it, it's not going to sound the best of anything, but it certainly like allows for a level of creativity that you don't have if you just have like a rat pedal. Mm -hmm. And um, and and it was wild to see. Like at first, it was like, oh my god, this is amazing. But then I was like, I never want to pedal again, and I need to figure out how to how to do this mm -hmm. because this is really just I can dial in my sound to what I want, and then and and I can change it. I can do all kinds of things that like just can't do with the gear centric uh focus uh so it was kind of eye-opening it's a it's a very important point to me because like you know like i was saying all of our favorite records were made by people using the tools to which they had access and just getting on with it so you know it's and the other the other piece too for me is all of this legendary gear is legendary for the most part because it's associated with legendary recordings that are our favorite recordings and so but like you can also make new legendary recordings and new work and like to me um any if the work, it's all down to the work. If the work is compelling enough, any flaw becomes a feature. You know, it's like uh, wh whatever shitty MCI console they were using in the 70s to make this or whatever thing that was like distorting and getting crunchy. It's like because like, let's say, you know, um, 
obviously like most of the Al Green records were recorded by Terry Manning, who's a fantastic engineer. But let's say there was some limitation. Something was like getting crunchy. Like people will imitate that, not because there's anything magical about the gear, but because that distortion has accrued cultural significance. It has taken on meaning because of how great Al Green was, you know, and I think I think it's important to not get that twisted. It's like having having a channel that will distort on a vocal in the same way is not going to make your work as compelling as Al Green. Like your work being as compelling as Al Green will make whatever gear you're using something that other people will want to seek out and imitate. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That, I, that that's uh, we actually talk about that that a lot. Like mm-hmm. you have to start with like the the work has to be like good, right? And great for it to be memorable. And and no, like you said, no matter how many like how many like Nev consoles you have or anything like it's not gonna it's it's not gonna elevate it. Like that's up to mm-hmm. like the human interaction for it. One thing that I that I think is a is a funny story, and I wish I could attribute this. I can't remember where I heard it but um at you know at stacks in memphis they were uh let sam and dave were an atlantic signing and they were uh loaned to stacks kind of basically like um jerry wexler or somebody was like hey you know we're gonna send this artist to you work with them like do your thing and they weren't getting any product back for a while and they were like well what's going on they were like we're having some technical issues or whatever so they put Tom Dowd on a plane with some parts for a Scully tape machine or whatever. And um, he turned up and like fixed the tape machine in like five minutes. And they, he was like, when's the last time you guys aligned this tape machine? And they're like, when's the last time we what? You know, and, right. and, <laughs> and that's like all those classic records, you know. So, yeah, it's, it's very easy to get too in the weeds and, and, you know, lose perspective on what's important. Well, that that bit about. Yeah, no, that 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 bit about um, Brad, about you loving kind of studios and the studio environment is a really is actually a really perfect segue and a, and a tee up here, because I, I suspect that most of our listeners um, won't have recognized your name immediately in the same way that, you know, I didn't when uh, that the pitch came across our desk. And Kevin and I are always trying to surprise each other with tunes and um, and uh, and um, you're, you know, that that single that uh, Technologia um, or Technologia, I'm not sure if it's Spanish or. Or what, I, but I say really... technologia, which is like Portuguese. Um, yeah, technologia. Yeah, perfect. Why. I'm Brazilian. Um, I'm, okay. I'm on board with that. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, that that really, um, you know, uh, as we prepared for, for this interview, there was this fun process of figuring out, well, what exactly do we know about, you know, Brad Allen Williams? Where have we heard him before? What are his recordings like? And um, I, I'm going to sort of go out on a limb here and say that if if folks are hearing, if the first thing they're hearing is this record um it sounds a little bit different from what from what you've done in the past there's sort of a there's like a dna that runs through all of your work i think but this is really there are just sort of different sounds and textures and kind of really a different set of aesthetic choices i think you made here was that was that very was that a very conscious decision on your part to go in and not sound like you were playing jazz guitar no it wasn't a conscious decision but like i can definitely hear that i think Um, if anything was a conscious decision, it was earlier work trying to like fit some stylistic tropes that a younger, less fully formed version of myself thought I should be trying to hit. And, you know, I think at some point you just kind of let go of, of what you imagine other people may be expecting of your work and you just make stuff to please yourself. And that, that you know that journey kind of takes some people a longer time than others and it took me a bit longer you know um so in a weird way i feel like a brand new artist kind of because i hadn't i mean i haven't been releasing work consistently i have i have more things actually ready to go after this one after this cycle is done but um but yeah it's like you know it i guess the best way uh for me to try and put it is I do a lot of collaborating. And so I'm very used to trying to um, empathize, I guess, with other people's artistic visions and kind of try to help them flesh out a technicolor version of what they're trying to get across. And I think when I was a bit younger, I kind of unconsciously did the same thing for myself in terms of imagining what kind of work I thought I ought to be making, you know, and Perhaps it, it was honest in its way, but but this is a little bit more uh, complete, I guess, in its honesty. Yeah, if you, if if 
somebody listens to Lamar, yeah, and then listen and then listens to this. They'd be like, "Who who is this guy? What, what's right. going on?" And, and look, there's a, there's a good number of years between the two projects. So, mm-hmm. um, but but it, it definitely what struck me about this was uh, that the the jazz roots were still in there, mm-hmm. but like it was very much stretching out mm-hmm. a little bit, and not like a lot of times artists don't necessarily want to like present the image of being like experimental. Like what is what is this? Are people going to react to this? And and this album, it it feels like from the start like a journey that you you're on, and it's going to get a little weird, right? And but then at the end of it, it all it all makes sense, mm. and it all makes sense. And the and the and going back through your catalog and and seeing like the stuff that you worked with people on, um, like you did an album with uh, all like Bill Withers covers. Right, and, yeah. and and you can you can if you really pay attention, you can hear all that in there. You can hear like your musical history that has informed it. But uh, you know, like you said, this is this feels like more you than maybe the the other stuff. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's it's funny. I think um, something that I that's important to me is finding threads. You know, making connections. Like, how does this thing? relate to that thing. And, and generally, if you go back far enough, it all relates, you know? And, um, I was, I was speaking with somebody else, uh, recently about Charlie Christian, you know, and I characterized Charlie Christian as the big bang of electric guitar. And it's fascinating to me because you can follow Charlie Christian out in one direction. Like the first obvious direction people do is like, okay, you know, like, um, Charlie Christian up through, Grant Green and Wes Montgomery through Russell Malone, Peter Bernstein, Cecil Alexander. Like that's that's one thread. But you could just as easily follow Charlie Christian through T-Bone Walker to Chuck Berry to Jimi Hendrix to Edward Van Halen to Vernon Reed to her. You know what I mean, Prince? Like that direction. Or you could follow Charlie Christian to through Junior Bernard to Danny Gatton to Brad Paisley, or you could follow Charlie Christian through T-Bone Walker to Keith Richards to Thurston Moore to, you know what I mean? So it's like, it all, like it all connects somehow and somewhere. And that's kind of um, a preoccupation of mine is like, you know, the, I guess the diaspora out from that, like those tentacles can curl back on each other and intertwine again. Like there's no reason they can't. You know, do you feel as far as like using Charlie Christian as the example here that in many ways, Charlie Christian sort of did everything that is going to be done on a guitar? Or do you think that there's still more stuff to be discovered? That's a good question. I think guitar, uh, the electric guitar in particular, um, is such a uniquely 20th century phenomenon. And that's not to say that it's um, obsolete in the 21st century. I would be in an existential panic if I felt it were. But um, but I think it's kind of, it's rise to prominence as a sort of, I guess, pop culture centerpiece was very much a 20th century phenomenon. And but I think in any instrument, there are there's potential to mine, you know, um, the piano like, man, you know, geez, the piano or the organ have been, you know, around for centuries and people are still finding new language, finding kind of new, you know what I mean? Like new language and, and things to to extract from it. So I think I think there's always new things to deal with on the guitar. I think. You actually, it's almost a cliche, but I've found for myself that I'm better equipped to find those new things the more aware I am of the earlier things. Going like way back when you you were you were grew up in Memphis, mm-hmm. when did you first get this idea that you might be a musician? That you might that this is like, oh shit, this is this is really for me. Yeah. Um, weirdly, I think. Um, 
I kind of always knew, but it took me a while to come around to admitting it. You know, when I was four or five years old, like my house was full of like 45 RPM, seven inch records. And my favorite thing to do was to take those. I'd memorize the A side, the B side, the artist, the producer, the catalog number, anything that was on the label, I would memorize. And it was just an obsession. And then I would make mixtapes, mix cassettes of them. And then, uh, but the real thing for me was I saw Chuck Berry on TV when I was like three or four. And that was just like, wow, I got to do that, you know? And my mom did the best she could. And, uh, but she put me in classical guitar lessons, which didn't really hold my fascination very much. But I discovered Hendrix at like 11 or 12. And then I was like, I was back in, you know? And, and did you find that you had like, an innate ability or was it like strictly just like I have to work really hard and do these lessons to like get to this level of proficiency? I felt like I had to work really hard when I was in the classical lessons. I didn't like my learning style didn't jive with that. But um, later on, when I got an electric guitar, I kind of I felt like I kind of had a natural ability. And in some sense, I think that that was almost to my detriment long term because I was able to shortcut a lot of the fundamental learning. Um, and it took me some years to kind of develop the discipline to actually learn in a way that was conducive to further growth. It's like using my good instincts, I was able to get so far and then I kind of hit a ceiling where the learning slowed down and I had to kind of backtrack and learn again. Yeah. I, I talked to a lot of people. I have a lot of friends who are guitarists and about, uh, continually taking lessons even. Mm -hmm. And just like doing stuff just to be like, be like that, that sort of wall, you know, you, mm -hmm. you speak of is like, you can get like super comfortable, mm -hmm. but then it, it, I don't know if it starts to bore other people, but it certainly starts to bore like yourself as a musician. You're just like, oh, well, I, I can do this. I know I can do this. And, and in your position, like it enables you to uh, play with Brittany Howard, it enables you to like fit in all these situations, but that. You know, that's a whole other like career path, like in, in many ways than being a pure like creative. Mm -hmm. Was that your goal once you reached this level? Was that your goal to just play with people or did you did you feel like you really had something to say? Um, wow, that's such a good question. I think a lot of my earlier career was marked with a bit of naivete about um not understanding that there's a million miles between being on stage with an artist and being an artist yourself. And I think I was in my 30s before I really kind of came to understand, okay, like there is a, there, there is a lot of, I guess, agency and ability to express and contribute in this way. But ultimately, you're always working in service of someone else's goals, which like, which I do enjoy. I love, like I like collaborating is one of my favorite things in life, you know, to the ability to really get inside someone else's. I mean, I've, I've spent my entire life amassing skills and knowledge to be able to bring musical ideas to fruition. And I love to be able to not flex that, but be able to like make it useful to be able to, you know, be helpful. And you're correct that doing your own work is a completely different thing. In many ways, it's a lot easier. I find that it's a lot less demanding because, it, you know, anything that fascinates me or is exciting to me, I can just follow it through. If And that's, you know, this, this newest record is kind of a great example of that. If I want to just like mess around with modular synthesizers for a while or like write for a string quartet, I can do that. And there's no, there's no kind of internal or external debate about whether it's right for this artist's work or for this person's direction. I can just do what pleases me. And, and the, the, speaking of the, the string arrangements, you know, one thing mm -hmm. we, we pointed out uh, that Ed kind of sold it to me on was, is very, uh, Bert Bacharachian. Mm -hmm. um, and where is it, who was your inspiration for getting to the string arrangements? Because that's that's something a little different than just being like, oh, I'm gonna pull out a guitar, I'm gonna do like the standard like four piece band or even a jazz setting. Um, when you're talking like bigger arrangements, you're also talking a bigger, uh, uh, in theory, a bigger canvas that you have to paint. 
a lot of it was pragmatic, you know, um, we because the interesting thing about this record compared to a lot of my work, I'm kind of a compulsive preparer. I love to, it's like the producer in me. I love to, I feel like when I'm making a record generally, um, my work is done before I set foot in the studio. It's like painting a car or something like the prep is the job. And then when you, when you go in, you get to see how good of a job you did. Like when you actually walk into the studio, that's when you get to see the results of your work. This record was very different from that process. Pete Min, um, who is the kind of the mastermind behind Colorfield Records on the creative side and was co-producer with me on this project. He's like, why don't you come in with like absolutely nothing prepared and nothing written? And that was like, that's so alien to me. That's just not a way I would ever work uh, when left of my own volition, you know, but uh but I kind of embraced it. And so we just got in and the very first day, it's just like, okay, choose an instrument and just start making stuff up and we will develop it. And we did. And ultimately at some point we're like, I, I guess it's not that we had exhausted the palette of what was there. I didn't even bring any of my own instruments. I just used whatever oh, wow. was, you wow. know, um, yeah, that, that is bold. But, <laughs> yeah. But once we had kind of exhausted like the first set of things to come to mind, we, I was like, man, it'd be cool. Do you mind if I write some strings on this one? And since I was writing that, I had all these long haul flights. I was uh, like, doing, like I said, doing a lot of touring last year. And um, I had this little one octave MIDI keyboard and I just on these airplane rides, I'm like, let me just make good use of this time and write some arrangements. And so I did. Um, you asked about inspiration and it's funny. You mentioned Burt Bacharach. That's salient, you know, because he just left us, but um, that also was a conscious, I love, there's something about those old, um, like the Burt Bacharach arrangements and productions, especially on like the obvious, the Dionne Warwick records and stuff. And part of it may be the personality of kind of the East Coast session musician thing, but there's a certain kind of, I don't want to say deadpan, but there's this, what I feel is like a layered set of emotions where like you hear these session musicians and it, there's almost a frigid a frigidity with the way they're performed there's almost a detached state but the songs are so um emotionally effective and the writing is so uh, almost cinematic and effective and so it's like you've got these beautiful like something can manage to be like almost saccharine and then almost like jaded and cynical at the same time and that sort of thing is very uh appealing to me that kind of where two emotions are kind of layered and existing at the same time and the like in that regard or in that vein, one of the main inspirations for me as far as the string writing that I did, especially on Technologia and the first track of the record, An Artifice, um, there was a television composer named John Carl Parker who wrote um, who wrote a lot of stuff uh, for like 70s serial television. The two, I guess, the two that I think of that I associate with him are Trapper John M.D. and Chips. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And like there was this thing where it was like with chips, it is literally a modular synthesizer with Trapper John MD. I think it's just like an insistent rhythm section where there's this like driving pulsing rhythm that's almost angry. And then there's this this string and sometimes some like wind ensemble stuff on top that's like very cloying and sweet. But it's against this driving rhythm and the way it's delivered by the players. I don't know if it was the intent. But to me, it's that same kind of conflict of emotion where it's like almost angry and saccharine at the same time. Yeah. And so I was kind of reaching for that, you know? No, that's a, that's a good goal to reach for. I always associate that. And I think a lot of people do, especially of a certain age uh, of just like the sound of the seventies. Yeah. Cause you saw, you saw a little of it go into the eighties on TV shows. Like you, like you said, I haven't heard Trapper John MD in years like that yeah. but but um in the 70s like you cover uh galveston on lamar yeah and 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 look glenn campbell does beautiful stuff and and that but that it it is that that sweet it's almost too sweet but somehow like it works yeah um i hear a lot of people and i know i'm one of them that are really influenced of my generation by john williams mm -hmm. and and i think that's just like saturation um, beyond his obvious talent. It's just, you you heard this type of stuff over and over and over, and it just sort of seems to be sitting in the background somewhere waiting for you to, like, pull it up and be like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Um, like, if you had said Magnum P.I., that would have been kind of, like, a little different. Vibe. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, another kind of example that's a little bit that's not um, you know orchestral in nature is um, Grant Green on the album Visions. He he covers uh, "We've Only Just Begun," the song that the Carpenters made famous. And it's somehow so incredibly sad. And the fact that like the song itself is such a kind of a, a, a sweet, you know, corny, cheesy anthem of like hope and optimism. It makes it even sadder, you know, uh, it's just like it's just something about that that I really love. Well, your, your comment up top about the sort of cultural weight of some of these sounds and, mm. you know, hearing hearing strings, um, you know, not only is there that sort of ambitious saccharine side of it, but then there's also the accumulation of knowing, I don't know, the sort of the John Bryan sounds and that mm. there's all this sort of, you know, there's a synthetic string sound that is that sometimes is well deployed. Sometimes it's kind of chintzy or, or mm-hmm. you know, closed or whatever. Um, I guess, I guess my question is, is how did you, you know, in a, so in a, in a world where you're, you can literally make your guitar sound like anything. Um, how do you, how do you decide what, you know, what sounds you do want on the record? Is it a, is it like a slow addition process? Is it a carving away of what you don't want? I think there are, a few things. I mean, to me, it's just going on vibes really is the, is the easy answer. It's just, it's, you know, it's really just impulse and instinct, but there are something, you know, during the making in this record, Pete and I talked about a lot about how much the guitar has accumulated over the last century. Like it really, like there's very little you can do with a guitar that doesn't evoke or seem to reference some earlier very important cultural moment you know it's like if you plug a stratocaster into a marshall and turn it up to six or seven um whether you realize you're doing it or not you are evoking in the listener's mind a connection you are you are putting yourself in a category whether you know it or not and that's um something that is difficult to wrestle with with the guitar because you it's very like i mentioned earlier about how it becomes easier to chart a course forward the more you kind of know about what's gone on and that's really as much as anything a matter of not inadvertently sending these signals not inadvertently doing things that read as this as a, a reference to this prior cultural moment and so pete and i like man we really there were a lot of things that we did not do intentionally. Like I, I mean, I think just within the past 20 years, like the giant pedal board has become such a, a standard thing for guitar players. And it's that thing where everybody is being unique in the same way, kind of. And that's something that I, you know, it's just like, okay, well, it's, God, we could talk about like the the sort of ridiculousness of the concept of the guitar pedal for a long time if we yeah. want, you know. Um, <laughs> Maybe we'll but, have you back on to talk about that. Yeah, <laughs> like, but yeah. we didn't. We didn't. We didn't use. I, we barely used any stomp box pedals. I think I used a fuzz pedal once. I used some kind of weird distortion pedal Pete had that I didn't understand and had never used because that felt okay, you know. But. Um, yeah, we I, I did a lot of like plugging guitars into the auxiliary input of a Moog synthesizer to get distortion, um, plugging guitars direct in and using, I mean, just like anything we could do kind of to make it interesting to us, to make it not feel like we were like walking on well-traveled paths. You, you still sound like yourself too. I think, I think that's, it's a thing that is said about a lot of guitarists, but like mm-hmm. there is a lot of like personality in someone's fingers uh, and that that's what like going across and hearing your playing across your catalog. I was like, oh damn, this guy really early on sort of developed uh, his own like feel that comes across in this stuff. So when you hear a record that you're on, you're like, yep, that's that's Brad Allen Williams. Like that's that's how he's playing. That's I mean, thank you for that because that's very much a goal of mine. I um, I was again speaking with someone else recently about how. There are a few ways you can go when you collaborate a lot. Um, One way, um, there are two what I would consider easy ways and one hard way. The first easy way is to have your sound and I sound like myself and only myself. And I'm going to, whoever it is I'm working with, they're getting what I bring. You know, that's, uh, and and there are a lot of people who are fantastic um, at that. 
And then there's another way of somebody who, you know, think of like the 80s archetype of a session guitar player where it's like, okay, well, if it's this project, I'm going to play this way. And if it's that project, I'm going to play this other way. And I'm so broad based and well-rounded that I can evoke, I can sound like anybody. I'm chameleonic, you know? Um, the risk with those two approaches is the, f the first way it may not be a good fit for the music or the artist you're working on. The second way risks reducing all of music to a set of superficial characteristics that you can imitate, you know, um, what I've always aspired to is to, um, bring my own artistic, authentic voice and contextualize it properly with whatever whatever I'm working on. In other words, not not play in a dishonest way, but also not play in a tone deaf way or insensitive way. Like try and figure out, okay, so I sound like this. I kind of really don't know how to sound any other way than myself. But like I'm gonna figure out how I'm gonna really do the work on every project and in every collaboration to figure out where that fits in. How can I help? How can I make how can what is true and honest to me make this project better? In, in that paradigm, where does somebody uh, like Sonny Stitt sit? Because Sonny Stitt, <laughs> we talk a lot about Sonny Stitt. We do talk and, about Sonny Stitt a lot on this podcast. And, he, and the reason we do is because he has this like massive catalog. And he was like his, his own, like, I mean, people accused him of, of sounding like Bird, and he, and he did. Um, but he also was just as valid. I've been accused of worse things, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> You know, so so it seems like him and and you are in this sort of unique class of musicians that really like seem to thrive in that in that paradigm. With Stitt, though, he he does a weird thing where he goes back and forth. Like sometimes it does sound like him, but sometimes it just doesn't. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense, yeah. Uh, um, I, I don't know how familiar you are with his catalog. Of course, but, I mean quite yeah. a bit. Yeah. There's yeah, a lot we, of that. He, I don't think he ever said no. To there is a lot of it. There is a lot of it. Yeah. I think, you know, I think there are a few aspects to that. There's what, what Sonny Stitt brings to it or brought to it. And then there's what we bring to it as listeners, you know, because there's, there have definitely been moments and artists where there were certain parts of their output that I didn't reconcile or didn't understand. And then, uh, with greater context started to figure out how it all fit together. I mean, Sonny Stitt was like that for me, but I mean like a great example of that for me is like Coltrane, you know, it's like if look at the ballads record and then, you know, Ohm, right? Like those weren't chronologically very far apart. Like, in fact, the ballads record was made kind of not far from a love supreme chronologically it was it was like right in there and that was all going on and that was all authentic or the johnny hartman record was also made rather late on so that's all in there and i think it would be very easy to listen to those things and have a hard time reconciling them as the same artist but very few of us do have a hard time just because we're so familiar with coltrane and we're so like kind of the multifaceted nature of his artistry and kind of that that complexity and like in fact a part of Coltrane to me one of one of the parts that makes him so magnetic to me and probably to other people is that he was so adept at dealing in these extremes like this extreme chaotic disruption and this extreme tender beauty at the same time and so I think you know with with Sun with Sunny Stitt, there may be a bit of that too, where there's some stuff that it's like, wow, this doesn't square at first, but but it does because it all comes from the same source, you know. Do you think that's easier to do in in jazz as opposed to like a pop idiom? Um, hmm. Does one or the other like sort of facilitate that more? Wow, that's a good question. I think what's challenging is that audiences broadly are uncomfortable with uh with artists who develop too much <laughs> and like that that sounds that sounds weird to say but yeah. but like you know we we as audiences love to be disconcerted if somebody does something that's not what we expect of them and 
Um, and I've worked with a few artists who struggled against that, sometimes defiantly, sometimes to their own professional detriment, where they're like, no, I'm, I'm going to deliberately not give these people what they want of me. And um, I would say maybe once upon a time, jazz audiences may or may not have been more open or receptive to um, audience, uh, to artists kind of going, going down a path and maybe try, developing in a certain way. Um, but I'm not sure they're as receptive to it now, you know, and, and, you know, in fact, if you read the, the liner notes to headhunters by Herbie Hancock, like he talks about a journey that he went on to accept this new direction, you know, it's like, it's a scary thing because you never know how people are going to receive it. And more often they're not, they're, they're not going to receive it well, you know? Yeah. And I think. Some of that has to do with how we consume stuff. Uh, I, I've become over the years more interested in, in sort of the the person behind the music than the actual music, because the music is just it. It, it uh, especially when it's like good, it can exist in all these different modes. It can be like demand like very serious attentive listening, or it can play in the background. It can score a bunch of stuff. But at the end of the day, somebody or like you or your album made that, mm -hmm. um, and so like what actually made them want to make certain choices in that stuff is is supremely interesting because you know you know what kind of what to expect from Herbie Hancock mm -hmm. and instead of like rejecting it just say hey wow then he's going through some stuff mm -hmm. maybe maybe it's great stuff maybe he's going mm -hmm. through some great stuff mm -hmm. but he's going through some stuff and then how that relates not the music, but how his journey or anybody, any artist's journey relates to like you, the listener. Mm -hmm. And that's important. I think the humanity, because, um, you know, hero worship is just another form of dehumanization. It's like a, it's like opposite polarity dehumanization, you know? So when we take an artist, someone that is our favorite, that we love, and we're disappointed because they're not standing still for our benefit. Like in a weird way, that's that's refusing to acknowledge the humanity because we all are going through things and growing and changes. We all get curious. We all get excited. We all get momentary obsessions that may just like go on for a second and then we come back like that's all part of being human. The, the uh, I watched the Grammys mm -hmm. and there was something that really kind of ticked me off about it was that they were referring to artists like they'd say there's like who's your artist? Are they going to win? Like as, as if it was like a sport and these mm -hmm. weren't people mm -hmm. up there. And I was like, what do you mean? Who's your artist? Like, who's the person that made this? That's what you need to say. Right. Yeah. Like, and, uh, it was, it was weird to see, well, maybe not so weird, but it, it, it felt a little weird to see the Grammys, like using that kind of language. Yeah. It is but, interesting. That's but an they interesting gotta, observation. They gotta, they gotta make a show, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean the, the sports metaphor is interesting. Cause I, I think about it a lot. Um, uh, there are sports that if you look at them long enough, you can see that once upon a time they may have been art. Like if you, if you look at figure skating or, you know, like diving or like, you know, some of these Olympic sports, if you look at them, you're like, at one point, it's almost certain that the entire raison d'etre of this pursuit was to make something beautiful. Um, and in fact, the way that they award medals or whatever or prizes is supremely awkward and clumsy you've got like a panel of judges that are like adjudicating and they're trying to make it as objective as they possibly can you know and i think i like to be aware of uh of that dynamic because i think there's a risk that similar things could happen to music over time you know um especially as more things become institutional um, as as art forms that may have once been based primarily on oral oral tradition become more studied in the academy, you know, um, I I really would like to, and, and also I mean, you know, frankly, uh, there are competitions, you know, for for instrumentalists and uh, across multiple idioms and they can be very good for the careers of some young people and they can really highlight and spotlight some genuine young talent. I think the risk is I don't want to end up in a world where, uh, I'm tuning in to see like 
the men's rhythm changes 300 BPM competition. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like I've, women's Coltrane changes 260 <laughs> BPM, you know? Well, on the, on the sort of, um, you know, economic side of, of the music business, which I think is sort of a little bit where maybe this competitive spirit comes from is this idea that there's, there's a sort of shrinking pie and everyone's, you know, and, and Taylor Swift owns the entire pie and whatever she doesn't get <laughs> belongs to Jack Antonoff or something. Um, but, but, you know, there's, there's, um, there is this, this is another thread that, that has come up, um, over the years as we've talked to folks, which is this idea that, you know, if the whole industry side of things has blown up and, you know, there's no such thing as like, uh, you know, punching through from, you know, the sort of underground to above ground into the monoculture, um, that, that has, that, that can be powerfully liberating for some artists who will just think, well, you know, if I'm not, if like, if platinum isn't even in the conversation, if I'm not trying to move units, I'm just going to make the best record I think I can make. Um, since that will likely, you know, since, since, since the, the, the sort of give, right, the slack that I'm playing with and how many units I'm going to move is probably fairly small given how fragmented everything is. Why not just make the best record? Why not just make the record you want to make? Um, and, and I mean, this I Grammy like, piece pulls us away from that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, um, there is some truth to that. And I, I just wonder how much is the same as it ever was. You know, I think, um, I read an interesting essay by John Philip Sousa, the March guy, you know, and yeah. it was from, I don't know, like 1903, 1905, somewhere around there. And it's called The Menace of Mechanical Music. And it was all the same hand wringing you read from people today. But in his case, it was like the phonograph record is going to put all the musicians out of work. The player piano is going to mean no musicians are ever employed. It's going to make the quality of music worse. It's going to do this. It's going to do that. Everything that everybody's saying about, you know, uh, it's everything everybody said about Spotify in 2010 or is saying about AI now. Uh, John Philip Sousa said about the phonograph record. And but like what he couldn't envision was the Beatles or Michael Jackson. He couldn't envision that that, that technology he was scared was going to kill the industry would actually lead to the hundred year period or the 50 year period where musicians, where music was actually the most lucrative that it's ever been in all of human history. And so I like to keep in mind that there are things that we cannot predict. There are the known knowns, the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. And it's the unknown unknowns that always get you, you know, like one example I think of a lot. Um, in other words, so the short version is I'm quite optimistic about all of it, you know, just because I believe that human creativity is undefeated. I'm like, I, you know, it always manages to adapt and survive. But I think about like, if you turn on YouTube, you see people who have, you know, 200 million subscribers streaming, playing video games, you know, and without that, without the kind of media landscape and kind of the, the way it's all structured, having been completely upended, Nobody ever would have predicted, like no network head at a cable network ever would have said, hey, we need to get a guy and everybody's just going to watch him play a video game for hours like that. That's what the audience is. Nobody could have ever projected that. So um, in in one sense, it's harder to punch through to the monoculture. But in another sense, we have incredible tools to do just that. And people who may not have. uh been identified by gatekeepers as having potential may now have the opportunity to prove their potential. Like you can, you know, if, if somebody doing some weird thing can manage to get a million followers on TikTok, then all of a sudden the monoculture starts paying attention. The, the AI thing is interesting for me because, uh, there's clearly, well, the main issue is copyright, mm -hmm. you know, for a lot of people like that, that's, that's a serious issue, but this idea that uh, as AI will just spontaneously copy the Beatles, mm -hmm. like no input from a human, mm -hmm. like we have, we would have bigger things to worry about at that point. If, if an AI is, you know, and, and, and so, like you said, if, if these are tools that can enable a kid to unlock some sort of like creativity, like you said, human creativity is undefeated. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it took until like I 
I'm early fifties. It took until two years ago to where I actually sat down and was like, I'm going to start recording. Mm -hmm. And I'd been composing stuff, but I was just like, for some reason, the technology didn't jive with me. Mm -hmm. And now it does. Mm -hmm. But all the things, like I have, like you said, I have a two octave MIDI keyboard, Mm -hmm. all those things, when they, like a synthesizer, when it came out in the eighties, oh, that's going to destroy music. Like you're, you're gonna put string players out of business, yeah. Because now you can just like the make drummers the Lindrum, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then look what Prince did with it. Yeah, right. You know, and and made it its own very unique instrument that won't play with anything else. Like mm-hmm. you can't you can't put it somewhere and be like, well, that just sounds like Jim Keltner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just not gonna happen. <laughs> well, the other piece is, why is nobody scared that AI is gonna replace? Tim Cook or Jeff Bezos. (laughs) No, I mean, really, that's you never hear that conversation. Like you never hear like, well, this like whoever in the like, you know, like mainstream capitalist heroes are who's like these brilliant minds who created, you know, these things. It's like nobody's ever like wringing their hands over like, well, what if an AI could take Tim Cook's job? You know, like why? But like, you know, like, why does it seem so? easy to somebody that an AI would be able to meaningfully like do what an artist does. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Um, speaking of that though, you, you are working with Colorfield records. You mentioned them earlier. Yes. And in this, in this landscape that we're in um, where you have AI coming for everybody's jobs and you have different like uh, Spotify, you know, leveling revenue, which there's, there's, there's truth to that. that it, that's such a complex it's issue. Complex. Yeah. Um, uh, our friend uh, Miles Mosley, I asked him about that once. He said, yeah, this is just makes me money while I sleep. Uh-huh. And that's how I view it because he works so hard. It, it, he just goes out and works. Mm-hmm. But Colorfield is doing something a little different. Can you can you talk about that? Yeah, well, um, you know, Pete Men owns a great studio out in here, LA, uh, in LA called Lucy's Meat Market. And he's like, you know, a vintage synth enthusiast and has formerly been a vintage guitar enthusiast. And he's a recording enthusiast and he's got and he's a fantastic engineer just with a great ear and also a great producer. And he wanted to start a label just making stuff he liked, you know, and it's like the the label kind of has an artistic point of view. If you dig into the catalog, there's some great releases on there. Anna Butters has a, a great bassist out here, has a fantastic record that was released last year. And, um, but, you know, limited edition vinyl, his priority is like doing everything first rate, you know, RTI, one of the the really the one of the top two pressing plants in the United States as far as quality does all the pressing Kevin Gray kind of a like an audiophile hero uh, cutting engineer does all the lacquer masters um, and Pete's his whole vision is like you know I'm just gonna put out stuff I like and try to build something you know and I, I mean I think he's really doing great work and more importantly, he put me in a position to make something that I wouldn't have made otherwise, you know, like uh, just asking me to come in with nothing prepared was a was great production in a way, because it's like, here's a way we're going to we're going to like stimulate this person to do something that's unlike anything they would have done. Well, and the and the results really are, um, you know, you sort of alluded, Brad, a little little bit earlier to this idea of just like, well, you know, every note's been played, especially on the guitar. Every sound has been made. Everything has been done. I can think I can think very vividly back to like a week in 2000 or 2001. And I think I saw Pat Martino and like Kurt Rosenwinkel within a week of each other with different Mm -hmm. setups. And I just thought, well, that's it. I never I never have to hear another guitar again. Like, that's just like, it's done. It's all over. Like, I'm that instrument is behind me. Right. Nothing, nothing new there. Um, and so and so, you know, to your point, like on on paper, um, uh, as I've as I've, you know, talked about this record to, to friends of mine, I, I sort of, you know, I didn't like the way I was talking about it because it really was centered around this idea of like, well, there's this guy who's a guitarist and it and it wasn't as focused on the idea of there are these interesting compositions that have this loose but structured feel to them. There's a sort of improvisational quality to the whole thing. And it has production touches that really do sound like they would fit on like a Frank Ocean record or something like that. Like it has that sort of like very modern, um, saturated, uh, you know, sound, which is I think a hallmark of, of, of things today. Mm -hmm. Um, how, uh, 
um, what do you like, like when you think about what's, uh, this, and this is a, this is a difficult question cause I'm asking you to speculate here, but what, you know, what does, what does a, a guitar record like, you know, uh, what does the, the equivalent of your guitar record in 20 years sound like? What, what, what do you think is, is, uh, down the road there? Wow. That's a good question because it's so, um, man, I gotta think about that one for a second. I think one thing that's interesting is, uh, it's such a tired concept, but what, what is like post-modernity, you know? And I think, um, you, you mentioned like the, saturated quality or, or like some things where maybe something may be distorted on purpose or something, you know, we're, we're leveraging all these, it gets back to the earlier concept I was talking about, about leveraging these other things, these things that have accrued meaning, these types of distortion that have somehow acquired cultural meaning. And, uh, there is a fair bit of that on this record. And I just, think in 20 years, maybe there will be some additional things that have acquired meaning that will be leveraged, you know? And I think a lot about the inevitability of, um, you know, the, the worst sounding, uh, analog to digital converter I can think of is the old Avid 888 IO, you know, it just sounded bad. And at some point is somebody going to seek that out? You know, is there, has that, or will that acquire significance, you know? And and so I guess to answer that question, I would have to be able to fortune tell what defects in music in that interim will become interesting enough or will take on meaning, you know? And I, I don't know. I, I was talking to a musician here in Milwaukee about a project that he did. It was completely solo. Uh, and like it's a, it's a project that I love, but I said, well, how how did you go about getting a lot of these sounds in this and getting an overall sound? And he's not a professional engineer. He's not a, a master or he doesn't master records. He said, well, I printed the album to cassette tape and then I put the cassette tape out in the sun on my deck. And then I put it back and re like introduced it to the digital realm and it wasn't quite what I wanted. So I printed that and like did just kept doing like weird shit to it. And what was wild about that to me is that it does sound unique, but it also sounds familiar. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we did, we did similar ish things on this project. Um, there's a, you know, one of my favorite two track tape machines is the Ampex ATR 102. And Pete has one, a great one. And, uh, we used it a lot in the making of this record. I like, we would do stuff like, uh, I would record, record drums at one speed and then we'd play them back at double speed or half speed. Um, there's, there's one track on there where, um, uh, we, we basically did a bounce of, uh, what we had so far to the tape machine, played it back at half speed. And I just shredded over top, just played as much guitar as fast (laughs) as I possibly could. And then we brought it back in and brought it back up to speed. And then it just sounded like, blah, 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 blah. you know, it was like, it was nuts. And it, but it sounded really cool. Um, that's, I think on the title track somewhere in there toward the end, there's that going on. And it, it what it does, it sounds like James Francis or somebody like shredding on a synth, but it's actually just a guitar played back at double speed. And so there's all these little processes that you can use. Um, and, you know, uh, also, if you if you even a great tape machine like the ATR 102, if you record at 3.75 IPS, if you record really slow, that's like that's like 911 operator tape speed. You know what I mean? Where it's like it, it. I mean, the bandwidth is limited. It's like the head bump is in a weird place. Everything's strange and it just sounds defective kind of. But it can be creatively really cool if you exploit it. It's just another sound. It's all just raw material. You know, it's like what. Um, that's what, you know, getting back to kind of the earlier gear conversation, whatever raw material you have, you can, it's up to you to make something out of it, you know? Yeah. Because I, I think even if you're on a guitar or just an in, a synthetic instrument or stuff, you're kind of recreating sounds you would hear in like nature in quotes. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's what creativity is. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I always, I ask, uh, singers that I know, like, why singing? <laughs> you know, it's such a weird way to express yourself. Mm-hmm. 
um, beyond the popular like, oh, people will pay to hear me sing. But why, why, why that? And and it it recreates like the obvious metaphors for birds, but like it it, it recreates something that we as humans like resonate to that isn't that synthetic if that mm. makes sense yeah right yeah there's like a something with which we have an association whether it's nature right. or whether it's just the like mad max hellscape of, of <laughs> the, the detritus of modern life right. that like kind of becomes our new nature it's like i grew up in an, kind of an urban milieu you know so like broken technology is like part of my part of my nature in a weird way like that's the environment in which i grew up so well, i was just going to say how you um how you navigate those limitations you know brad in the last 10 minutes you talked about like you know the, the the sort of salient things about the current moment will be these weird things that we think of as defects today right that could end up mm -hmm. being uh sort of hallmarks of of where we are today and just to sort of circle back you know coltrane and and and, and dolphy just to pick two guys who really mm -hmm. did play all the notes i mean clearly found themselves in a sort of a creative cul-de-sac staring at their instrument wanting it to be a different instrument i think that's sort of how i think of like that quixotic quest at the end of their um of their lives um unfortunately but you know working within those constraints those limitations there's that quote i, I think it's attributed to jerry garcia but i think it's apocryphal about you know what we think of as a person's as a guitarist style is really just the limitation of their technique Right. They're, they're yeah. playing to the maximum of their ability. So what you associate as being idiosyncratically them is just is just their their technical limitation. Yeah, that's part of it. I mean, I think all all humanity is limitation, you know, and and if to the extent that that artistic work is a reflection of the humans that make it like it's going to come packaged with limitation. And that's exciting, you know. But uh, yeah, I guess to answer your your the first part of your question i think paying attention is important you know like um paying attention and staying curious all of the artists that i've had a chance to work with closely who continue to inspire me that's one thing they all have in common is that like nobody's really sitting back and saying okay well i've done it let me just keep let me just coast you know everybody's always intellectually curious a little bit restless trying to you know stay curious and and find the next thing. Yeah. So with economy, are you going to be taking this out on tour? No, probably not. No? To tell you the truth, I, 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 um, I, that's for two reasons. Number one, um, I tour a lot already, uh, just as a, you know, as with others, as a collaborator, sideman. And I've seen what it's like. <laughs> touring as a sideman you actually come home with money touring as a band leader uh man maybe if maybe some people do eventually but it, it's hard out here you know it's it's a it's a really hard road and uh it's uh the other thing is and this is kind of related to that is i'm not quite sure yet who's listening we'll have to wait and see like i said i've got i've got this um project that's out now that I feel very good about and proud about and have had some encouraging uh, response. And I have another full length completed in the can ready to go that um, that I'll be, you know, figuring out exactly when I want to release that hopefully later this year. And then I would like to do one more, you know, um, to 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 release kind of on the heels of that. And then We'll see who's listening. You know, if uh, that's the, another one that we were talking earlier about the the double edged sword that is Spotify and other things. One of the things that it does give us as artists uh, that's a benefit is a level of granular data about who's listening that the major labels in the 80s and 90s would have killed for. Like I can see like, OK, I've got this for some reason. I've got this one track that's like racking up a ton of streams in Cleveland, you know, and it's like I can route my tour around that data. And as much as the uh, the actual direct payout lucrative side um, we have to work on um, and hopefully some advocacy will help us get that straightened out. There are benefits that besides that that do exist right now that we can leverage if we're smart and intentional about it. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks so much, dude. Uh, this has been 
a fantastic conversation. I think everybody needs to go out and get economy now. Thank you. Um, you know, we, we're listening. Uh, our 11 listeners listen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we also have that granular data. But uh, yeah. but yeah, this, this has been fantastic. And uh, come back again sometime. Next Great. Part. I would love to. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. That was our lovely chat with the amazing Brad Allen Williams. Um, really uh, felt like we could have talked to him for a really long time. And in some ways, it felt like there's just so much stuff we like barely scratched the surface on. I, I feel like he's a guy that you could just sort of tee a topic up and then sit back and let him and let him go. I, I don't even think we hit on like his knowledge of like the history of music. I, I think we re- touched on it, but but I think if you started to like really get into like the history of let's say stacks um, and yeah. and older labels like that and older studios even I think that there's just like like hours and hours of 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 conversation to be had. But hopefully he'll want to come back. You heard him say yeah. he has a new project in the can, um, so you guys go out and tell him how much you love this by listening to the record, and then maybe that'll get that out sooner and you'll have more to talk about. I, I hope the new record is a post-apocalyptic wasteland with a Tim Cook AI as the ruler. Yes. That would really be the, <laughs> that would really, that would really just tie everything together for us. That that's going to be, uh, yeah, that, that's my line now when anybody like disparaging like AI, like, well, I'm never <laughs> like that's, that's amazing. Uh, hope you enjoyed that. Uh, coming up next week, we're back to like the, regular version of the show interviews are going to be like every other week and sometimes we might not have an interview and that, yeah. that's okay you know it's a you know but hopefully we'll, we'll have a lot i know we have a couple on the books that are that are going to be really good uh coming up uh so until then uh stay warm it's no one balls here <laughs> so we, will, we will talk to you soon <laughs>